to the Explorers. Time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. Last time, we explored the laundry list of duties a Tudor housewife is staying busy with at the homestead. Now it's time to venture beyond our domestic haven and find out what kinds of employment we ladies might be getting up to, and meet some boss women of business who aren't about to let the patriarchy keep them down. Our guest, Ruth Goodman, will be with us, as always, but we also have a new companion on this time-traveling adventure. Elizabeth Norton has written many books on Tudor queens and the Tudor period, including The Hidden Lives of Tudor Women. You may also have seen her on the newest BBC documentary about the Boleyns. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be here. So, pull up your woolen tights, grab your pin money, and get ready to elbow your way through a sea of ornery men. Let's go traveling. Most of the work women can do and make money from is defined by the domestic sphere. If we have surplus ale, or spun wool, or cheese, we might sell it as a kind of sideline. But a lot of us are focused on the complex and serious work of running the home. Few of us are working in a public-facing, professional capacity. That said, getting a job is pretty much a rite of passage for most Tudor youths. Here's Ruth. Well, actually, most women went out to work at 14 and, uh, and were working for cash and wages until they got married. But they were doing so by moving into somebody else's house. To be honest, the same is true of a large proportion of young men. So at about 14, most, I mean, something like 70% of the youth population of Britain would leave home and go and move in with somebody else, usually another farm. And then you would work for them as their servant, a servant in husbandry. You took a contract for a year um, and the employer was responsible for feeding you, clothing you and housing you for that year, plus as much basically for that year on their farm. Usually, your parents will help you find your first placement, which will last for about a year. From there, you will move from placement to placement, with the work you're doing getting more and more specialized. The idea is that by the time a girl is getting married, on average, somewhere in our mid-twenties, she has some money in her coffers and ten years or so of learning in the domestic arts under her belt. This kind of placement can be hard to score in the finest households, as it's considered more prestigious amongst the nobility to have male servants. Henry VIII's household features only two working women, the trusted washerwoman and a confectioner. Who is this cake lady, and how did she snag such a plum job? It's a mystery. Most servants live in, given room and board in exchange for their labor. And so many people want live-in servants that usually a girl can be choosy. But most of these contracts are annual, and obedience to our elders is held almost as a sacred duty. So, if your master is harsh, you're probably going to have to suck it up. None of this is really considered a career as such. It's a transitional period from childhood to adulthood. So, what are the options for ladies who want a career of their own? To work independently not in, a, in that sort of context was much harder for women, although that was normal. Um, outside of that context, much more difficult. There wasn't really the sort of plain 
sewing market in quite the same way that they would be in later history. People didn't buy ready-made clothing. So clothing was usually made by a tailor who was a trained man, not, a, uh, not an option open to girls. If you were a girl, the only sewing you'd be able to do would be playing, would be underwear sewing, seamstressing. That really paid very poorly. You couldn't really support yourself much on that. For the enterprising lady willing to take the associated risks, there's always prostitution. Sex work occurs mainly in cities, and though it's mostly illegal, there are some licensed brothels in England's port towns. All you have to do is pay rent to the brothel keeper for the room, but you get to keep your earnings. And, as always in the trade of fleshly favors, there is serious money to be made. But it's a dangerous proposition. You'll have to worry about disease, violence, pregnancy out of wedlock, and, of course, charges of immorality. You never know when the wrath of your community might come raining down. In the winter of 1567, a man named Henry Koo will give in to the siren song of his local brothel, run by one Mother Bowden. But when his wife finds out what he's up to, she will march on over and beat up Mother Bowden, who was offering Henry her daughter's services, while Henry slips away over the back fence. Don't worry, he'll be back a few days later. And this time, an angry mob will chase him down and have him and Mother Bowden arrested for immorality. Punishments thrown at women of evil life are often severe. Sometimes they're subjected to the pillory, a fixed plank of wood that your head and hands are locked into. Uncomfortable and often painful, but also a public humiliation. Sometimes they're led through the streets in a Circe Lannister-style walk of shame. One Agnes Dreyer in London is led through the streets wearing a hood over her head, while minstrels follow behind her, alerting all who hear them of her crime. Sometimes a girl enters into a trade apprenticeship. Most of the ladies who find their way into this type of employment are orphans between 7 and 12, and this serves as a kind of fostering program. In return for serving faithfully for up to a decade, the girls get room, board, clothes, and training in a craft, and the business. But there are governing trade bodies that make it really hard for a woman to run her own business. Many of the industries of the era have guilds, powerful bodies kind of like our labor unions, which set standards of pay and behavior and support families who fall on hard times. Very few of these trades explicitly say the girls can't become apprentices, but the records still show us very few of them. Yet there's one trade that seems to be dominated almost entirely by ladies. They're called silk women. Silk women deal in raw silk thread and all the products that come with it, including points and laces used to cinch up our outfits. As we found out when we got dressed this morning, this can be a busy and lucrative trade. Silk women are recognized in the world of business and respected. This is true over in Europe, too. In Paris, the silk women even have their own guild and take on female apprentices. Women are involved in other trades, but often not in their guilds, which limits their power and prominence. And because they don't have a voice there, they can't fight back against unfair treatment. Most women's work isn't paid very well or considered very prestigious. At the beginning of the Tudor period, a man could pull in about four pence a day. A woman, by contrast, could command just half that. As the century goes on and Elizabeth I becomes queen, you'd think that opportunities would open up for the ladies, but it seems as if they only decrease. 
Sometimes there are overt attempts to force women out of a trade altogether. For example, the weavers of Norwich in 1511 gave this paltry excuse for why women shouldn't be allowed to buy wool and spin it for profit. They should not be of sufficient power to work the said worsteds as they ought to be rout. Tell that to the woman who beats your laundry. Have you seen my arms? If women do join a guild, it's usually through marriage. But if your husband dies, a widow gets to stay in his guild on her own steam. Widowhood puts at least some of us ladies into a potential economic sweet spot. It gives us a kind of autonomy we didn't have before. But sadly, that's not true for all. Here's Elizabeth. When your husband dies, you, you pop back up as a legal person. You're now, now you can be sued. Now you can go to court and you can own things. So as long as you had a bit of money as a widow, you could have, it, widowhood is really quite a liberating time for women. Poor women, it, it's a nightmare because actually you've got, you've probably got children um, to raise. You, you need to pay for your household. Um, in general, if they can, they remarry if they're poorer women because having a man, a husband is generally more beneficial socially and economically in the period. But if you've got a bit of money and you're comfortable enough, you actually being a widow is, is pretty much the, the freest time of a woman's life. Of the 70 widows who were left printing shops in their husbands' wills during the Tudor era, some 50 end up getting rid of them within four years. But the rest keep on running them, operating a business that they aren't technically allowed, or at least aren't encouraged, to run. In this way, we see a tenth of the publishing industry run by women. Widows particularly can run companies um, because they'll often inherit the business from their husband. And there are many examples of widows running companies very, very successfully. In the 1520s, one Catherine Fenkel, the widow of a London draper, took over the family business. She's a particularly fabulous case. She wouldn't have been allowed to join the draper's company and she wouldn't have been allowed to set up in business as a single woman. But she's obviously worked with her husband and just very seamlessly takes over. She engages her own apprentices. Um, she runs her own sort of small fleet of merchant ships. Um, she's very, very successful. In fact, you know, she's still not allowed to join the draper's company, but she becomes effectively a guest of honour. She's always at the top table at the draper's company feasts. They would every year they would go and borrow her silver plate from her house to make their table look grander. Um, so she's a really influential figure. But it's it's quite common for widows to take over businesses and in many cases run them very well. A married woman will have a pretty hard time of it if her husband isn't behind her business enterprises. Because, legally speaking, we ladies are considered an extension of our husbands. Under the law, husband and wife are one person, one flesh. But that doesn't mean we're equal. Oh no. When you marry in the Tudor period, you lose your legal personhood. You're no longer an individual at law. You have no rights at all. So everything that a married woman owns before her marriage now belongs to her, her husband. And that includes her clothes, um, her lands, if she's inherited any, every single thing, clothes, furniture, um, all belongs to her husband. And that's one of the reasons why a married woman can't make a will, because actually they don't own anything. You know, they've got nothing to leave. They can't be sued. They can't sue someone individually because they have no legal personhood everything goes through their husband so you know if they if they buy something and you know don't then don't pay the bill 
actually it's the husband who gets sued, which I mean, in some ways could work to the woman's advantage, but in general, it's, it's a real detriment because you're entirely dependent on your husband. But this depressing reality does create for us a little loophole. Our husband can have us declared femme sole, or a single woman for business purposes. Under this title, we can trade under our own name, own property, even sue or be sued. Silk women have been known to twist this situation to their own benefit. They will buy goods from someone, saying they're femme sole and promising to pay them later on. But then, when the creditors come calling, they say they aren't femme sole, which means they can't be taken to court over it. Striking back at the patriarchy, one shady deal at a time. Here's another fun and semi-uplifting fact, courtesy of Elizabeth Norton. Technically, women have the vote in the period. Um, it's only later that they lose the vote. So if you're a female landowner, then you can vote in parliamentary elections. Um, it's quite rare for them to do so. There's a lot of social pressure against them doing so, but they can technically vote, and occasionally they do. But what are our odds of starting our own business? If we never marry, it's unlikely we'll ever be able to raise the capital, and we don't have the business connections we need. If we're women of means, you might have a hard time getting out of making an advantageous marriage arranged by parents or other members of your family. Even if a woman is widowed, a man can treat her badly in his will, putting her in a really tough spot financially. Single women find it hard to get by in Tudor England. And people didn't like the idea of a woman being independent. Every woman was supposed to be under the authority of a father, a husband, or a master. Uh, a lone woman was something that society were really frightened of. Um, they thought it was deadly scary. Women had no self-control, it was thought. Um, and to leave them without a man to supervise, mm, mm, society did not like that. And closed down you know, any opportunity that sort of opened for a woman to make an independent living on her own. It was pretty much closed down instantly because they didn't want independent women. One Alice Reed, a 40-year-old living in Norwich, whose husband had run away and left her and their four children behind, had to spin wool to make ends meet, and even then, just barely. One of her neighbors in the building took in washing and did spinning just to survive. In 1570, there will be no prospect of retirement for 80-year-old, one-handed Elizabeth Menson. She will be spinning for her supper, probably until the day she dies. It's only odd jobs like these that most women can make money doing. In Cornwall, poor women and their children earn some coins by digging up lugworms out of the mud of the riverbeds and selling them to fishermen to use as bait. Even, you know, single women or widowed women who have their legal personhood, they still are very much up against a weight of patriarchal authority. You know, they can't, they can't become apprentices in the London livery companies, for example, they have lower inheritance rights. You know, they're not necessarily going to inherit the manor if they've got a brother. Um, they, you know, many professions aren't open to them. So women are very much second-class citizens in the Tudor period. How do women feel about all this injustice? To understand that, we need to put aside our modern feminist lens. In this era, we're taught all our lives that our most important task is to be humble, meek, and obedient, to center our attention on hearth and home. We're brought up to believe that we are, in many ways, inferior to men. 
This starts from day one of our existence. Common wisdom of the day says that boys and girls receive their souls in the womb at different times. Girls are believed to obtain theirs at 90 days gestation, some 44 days later than a boy gets his. Our medical knowledge says that we ladies have the weaker vessel and that we're much more susceptible to all sorts of evil. And so we must look to the men in our lives to inform and shape us. I am utterly of the opinion, writes Thomas Lupset in 1535 in An Exhortation to Young Men, that the man may make, shape, and form the woman as he will. And he isn't alone. Even educated, powerful monarch Elizabeth I doesn't think women are meant to be superior. In one of her most famous speeches, she says that, I know I have the body but of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and of a king of England, too. No, 100% she, she knew women were inferior to men. I mean, she sees herself as something of an exception. She's quite, you know, she has this sort of manly courage. But um, again, you know, all the, all the kind of good qualities are male and all the negative qualities are female in the period. So yeah, I mean, everybody believed women were inferior to men. Our society expects us to live meekly and modestly. We're not supposed to ask probing questions. We aren't supposed to complain about our lot. We aren't supposed to have any pretensions. It's a difficult thing for the modern lady to swallow, but it's the prevailing attitude of the time. If you decide to get lippy anyway, you aren't just risking a good telling off from your husband. You might actually be punished in a very public way. Punishments for women who don't conform to social norms are sort of being quiet and submissive. And um, they're pretty brutal. They're, they're generally designed to embarrass the woman, humiliate her rather than actually hurt her. So there are two major ones used in the period. The first is the scold's bridle, the brank, and that comes from Scotland, but um, is starting to be used in the Tudor period. And that is this sort of metal frame that goes over your head and it has a clamp that goes into your mouth and holds your tongue down. So it can stop you scolding, stop you speaking. We can imagine that being paraded around town wearing this horrible gag cage would be pretty humiliating for you and your entire family. A powerful inducement not to step out of line. More commonly, um, almost every parish would have one, is the ducking stool or the cooking stool. And what this is, it sort of it looks a bit like a seesaw or a catapult. And it's on wheels and it will be wheeled to the woman's house, the offending woman, to so the woman who has scolded or transcended some social norms. Um, so it comes to the door of her house. She's then brought out and she's strapped onto a chair on one end of it and then wheeled through the town. So paraded effectively, you know, everyone will be jeering, they'll be laughing at her. They get her to a river or a lake or whatever body of water they've got nearby. And then obviously they press down one and they dunk her in the river and they'll do that a few times. So it's uncomfortable, um, but it's not actually going to do her any harm. But the point of it, again, is it's so humiliating. You'll always be the woman who was on the who was ducked in the river last summer. You know, it's you know, it's it's embarrassing for the woman. But enough already with the male oppression. In our next and final chapter of our day in Tudor England, we're going to kick up our feet, have a feast, and have some fun. Until next time.
Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, please tell a friend or leave a review wherever you listen. It really helps new listeners find it. Many thanks to Ruth Goodman and Elizabeth Norton for time traveling with us. You can find links to all their work in this episode's show notes, which you'll find at my website, theexplorerspodcast.com. I'd like to thank some of my wonderful patrons who really do help me do what I do. My newest pirate queen, Tiffany, and my newest lady presidents, Elena and Catherine P. My adventuresses, Alexis, Anna, Carlos, Helena, Iris, Jessica, Amber, Kelly, Lizzie, Phil, Samantha, Stephanie C., and Stephanie F. My boss ladies, Amy, Annabelle, Bethany, Bronwyn, Grace, Jessica, Sophie, and Julian, Michelle, Monique, Nuria, Rebecca, Sarah, and Tanya. My warrior queens, Lori and Avery. My newest imperial empress, Katie, as well as Faye and Whimsy Soapworks. And my lady pharaohs, the two lovely Courtney's and Mary Kay. Patrons get early access to my episodes, as well as exclusive bonus episodes, full interviews, contests, and more. To find out all about it, just go to my website. You can connect with me over on Instagram at the Explores Podcast, Twitter at the Explores Pod, or on Facebook. Music from this episode comes courtesy of guitarist John Sales. Thanks to Mr. Explores, as always, for my theme music and logo, and the following legends for their vocal stylings: Catherine Elliott, Jim DiBartolo, and Jordan. Bartolo, and Jordan.